Fellow students, if you'd be so kind, turn to 1 Samuel 21. We're going to run through two chapters today. We're not going to run through, we're going to walk through, right? We're going to walk through. Um, one of the many attractions of Scripture is that the Bible is terrifically transparent about its characters. One of the things you'll notice is God never, never puts on makeup for any of his uh, Bible characters. He never whitewashes people's character. He never... Uh, puts any makeup on. He, we see biblical characters, warts, doggy breath, drool, hat, hair, and all, right? This shouldn't surprise us because God is truth, right? And therefore his word is truth and therefore he's always going to tell us the truth about characters. We're going to talk today about David and Saul and a contrast between the two. And I want to talk about the very messy process that God goes through in developing character. How many of you are in a character development program that Jesus Christ is personally supervising right now? For how many of you is that a really messy process? It, it, it's not, uh, you know, uh, you, you don't know the roadmap next week. You don't know the roadmap this afternoon. You're following the shepherd. You're following the guide. And a lot of times it leads through the muck and the mud of people, other people. So let me give you a little, little background. David has killed Goliath, about 18 years old. He's now Israel's hero. King Saul has figured out that David is going to be his replacement. God is anointed. David finally, uh, Saul has finally figured out. So Saul declares war against God. Saul says, I'm going to kill this kid. He's not going to be the next king. In chapters 18 and 19, Saul tries to kill David 12 times. 12 separate, and he's not done yet. We're going to have some more assassination attempts come up, but 12 different times he's tried to kill him and he's failed each time. David and Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son, the crown prince, become best friends. Jonathan abdicates his position as crown prince for the benefit of David to be, well, he's still the crown prince, but he abdicates his future role as king. Jonathan tries to reconcile David and Saul, and that doesn't work. Saul refuses to do that. We're going to look at the difference between David and Saul today in a couple of dramatic areas, but the first question I have, and it's really the key question that you will look at in determining how these two guys respond is, number one, do I ask God for guidance? Do I ask God for guidance? Now, if you don't ask God for guidance, the presumption is you're at least as smart as he is and maybe smarter. And so therefore you would need to ask for guidance, right? Because you have it figured out. Now, if you buy that line, I've really got some swamp land for you. The second one is probably tougher. When I ask God for guidance and he tells me what it is, do I follow it? Do I follow it? David and Jonathan take complete, David and, and Saul take completely different answers to this particular question. Now, chapter 21, where we're going to start today, marks the beginning of a 10-year exile for David. He's now going to be a fugitive out of the palace on the run for 10 separate years. He's about 20 years old right now. From 18 to 20, there's been 12 assassination attempts on his life. How would you respond when you were 18 years old if there were 12 assassination attempts on your life? Right? I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. He's going to be crowned king, we know, at 30. So we have about 120 months, about 10 years of exile. Chapter 21, verse 1. Let's jump in. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, 
And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? So David has left Jonathan after they swore a covenant together, and he heads up the hill to Nob. Nob is a, a priestly village at the top of Mount Scopus, which is not very tall. It's about you know, 1,500 feet high, so it's not terribly high. It's about two and a half miles. If you look at the map Rob has on the screen, Nob is about two and a half miles southeast of Gibeah. Gibeah is Saul's headquarters. That's Saul's home turf, Gibeah. And it's about 1.5 miles northeast of Jerusalem. In the old maps, if you see Jebus, J-E-B-U-S, that's Jerusalem. I wasn't named that yet, but remember, distances in Israel are very short. Remember, they didn't have your SUV. Everybody walked everywhere. So you go, well, one and a half miles, no big deal. Yeah, but if you walk it three times a day, you know, you'll burn some serious calories, right? So two and a half miles south of Saul's hometown, mile and a half northwest of Jerusalem. Now David has received help from Samuel in the past, so he's running from Saul. His first stop is the priestly village of Nob. That's not Nob Hill, by the way, in San Francisco. It's Nob in Jerusalem or in, in Israel. And he thinks he's going to receive help from the priest, which is probably a, a legitimate course of action for him to take. Now David is Saul's general. He's put over the, over the man of war, and he normally would travel with an escort. But he's all alone. And he comes to this priestly village of Nob, and he talks to the high priest Ahimelech. And Ahimelech is a little concerned that David's all by himself. If you're the general, and there's no entourage of soldiers with you, what's going on? So he, he asks him. Now David's got a ready-made story. David, he's on a top-secret mission from the king. It's so secret that he can't talk about it or he's going to have to kill you. And he didn't say that. You know, can't talk about it. Verse 2. David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter. Think Blues Brothers. And he said to me, <laughs> let, I knew you'd wake up. Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, which I have commissioned you. And have I have directed the young men to a certain place. So here's the principle, we'll, we'll explicate this in a second. Lying is a symptom of fear and not faith. Lying is a symptom of fear, not faith. David is telling a bold-faced lie. It reveals that I am trusting in myself and not in God. So this week when you lie, I'm not saying you will, but you'll be tempted, right? Remember, lying is always, base of the lie is fear, it's not faith. Now, David is basically telling him, like, man, this is a cloak and dagger mission, not even the KGB or the FBI or even the NSA. Nobody knows about this thing, right? David seems to have forgotten at this point that God had promised, you will be the king of Israel. He seems to be relying on his own wisdom. And, of course, that led him to lie to Ahimelech's face. I don't know whether he wanted to protect Ahimelech from Saul's retribution, but we're going to find out that didn't work. But before we judge David too harshly for lying, and he is lying, remember he's 20 years old. <clears throat> he's had 12 assassination attempts in two years. I think you and I would be a little twitchy at 20 if we'd survived 12 assassination attempts. So he's doing the wrong thing, but I want you to put yourself in his shoes. So David now comes to the core of why he's there. Verse 3, he says, now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. I mean, he must be hungry. He's like scrounging up. Whatever you can scrounge up is okay. I'll even take that three-day-old spaghetti in the fridge that's starting to move and got green stuff on top. I'm really, really hungry, right? Don't you keep stuff in your fridge like that? Yeah, okay. 
Don't throw any food away. That was why I grew up. Verse 4. So the priest answers back to David. He says, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. That's a different kind of bread. Only if the young men have kept themselves from women. Now, in past history, Israel's temple, tabernacle, would have been popping with, with uh, worshipers. And they would be bringing sacrifices. So there'd be a lot of food. The temp tabernacle was usually a place where there was a lot of food. Because people brought the sacrifice to lay on the altar. You ate some of it. The priests ate some of it. There was a lot of food. But this nation's now in spiritual decline. So there is no bread. There is no food, period, in the tabernacle except the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence is bread that the priests baked every week, right? Very strict recipe. And they took that bread and they put it on the altar as an offering to the Lord. And it stayed there for a week, seven days. At the end of that week, they would bake another batch of hot loaves. They'd put that out as an offering to the Lord. And then the priests could eat the week old bread, right? That's the only bread that was left is the seven day old stuff because they'd baked a fresh batch and put out there. You couldn't touch the fresh stuff because that was an offering to God. But after seven days, you could eat it. And that's what he had available. Only bread he had available. He says, okay, you can have this stuff. So David assures him, and by the way, to eat bread like this, you had to be ritually pure, which in this case meant you had to be sexually celibate that day. And David tells another line, says, oh, trust me, all the guys, man, they're good. Now, they might have been, but they're not even with him. So he's... Stretching things here. So verse 6 says, he gave him the bread. Not a problem. Jesus actually quoted this passage in, in the New Testament and said the date that the priest did the right thing because man exists at a higher level than bread. In other words, bread is for man, not man for bread. Now, right here you want to cue the forbidding music of the Twilight Zone. How many of you ever seen the Twilight Zone? And you know what that music sounds like? That's what you should be listening to in your head right now, right? We are not alone. Verse 7. One of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was a name you would never give your child. Doeg. The Edomite. D-O-E-G. How many of you know any children named Doeg? Right? Okay. You have one of these, right? Fido the Doeg? Yeah, come on. He's an Edomite, and he's the chief of Saul's shepherds. He's a, he's a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob, of course, the Edomites. Doeg may have been a Jewish proselyte. It said he was in the temple. And you first read that, or tabernacle, you say, what would an Edomite be doing in the tabernacle, right? I mean, this guy's not a Jew. So he had to be a proselyte, which means he was a convert to Judaism, right? I don't know whether he was ritually unclean, had to bring a sacrifice as an offering. But at any rate, he was at the temple when David gets there. And David immediately knows that this guy is a spy. He immediately knows that he's going to have trouble because this guy's going to report him to Saul. Verse 8. The very next words out of David's mouth are, do you have a Colt 45 I could borrow? I'm really in need for some help here, right? Or a howitzer would be good too. He says, now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's matter was urgent, right? So request number two is, not only do I need food, I need a weapon. And this is lie number two. I didn't bring any weapons with me. I was in such a hurry. The king commanded me to get out of Dodge and get in this king's manor. Have you noticed that lies are like rabbits? They breed. 
almost magically. And lies are not like hermits. They never live alone. One lie breeds another, and pretty soon you got a house full of them. One of the reasons you should always tell the truth is your memory is failing, and you can't remember who you told what. Say yes. yes. Okay, that's just life. So if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Right? We, we, we need as much free capacity up here as possible. So don't clog it up with lies, right? So David is now digging a deeper hole for himself, right? He's lied twice now to the priest. And the priest says, we happen to have a howitzer here, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah. Behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephah. If you would take it for yourself, take it. For there is none other except it here. And David said, there is no sword like this one. Give it to me. Right? So they kept Goliath's sword as a memorial in the tabernacle, which would be testimony of God's deliverance over the Philistines, which is interesting. We really don't do that here. I mean, if you could, I guess behind the stage here, we could keep something that was used in Iraq to demonstrate God's deliverance. That's exactly what it was. It was a memorial. Verse 10. Once David's got the food, once David's got the sword, it says he arose and what? Fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Here's the principle. Taking action without praying is like driving without directions. Get directions before you start driving, not after you're lost. I know, I know. Marin said, you men never ask for directions. I said, oh, sure we do. After we're driving around for an hour and a half and we're thoroughly lost, we'll ask. But I mean, you know, not immediately. Why would you ask before when you can ask after? Right? Doesn't that make sense, guys? Right? I can find my way, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, a chance. Yeah, pretty slim. And you'll get there late, but at any rate. So David now is operating thoroughly in fear. David is operating in fear. He believes that the long arm of Saul is going to reach him if he stays anywhere inside the borders of Israel. So he is going to leave the people of God. Rob's going to show you the map here. And he's going to walk 23 miles to the enemies of God. That's the, that's the kingdom of Gath. The city of Gath was one of five cities of the Philistines. It's 23 miles from Nob to Achish. And he doesn't take a fast horse or a slow mule. He walks, right? He's 20 years old. But he's walking from the people of God to the enemies of God. Get the picture. He's running away from King Saul, who has tried to kill him, right? Legitimately so. To King Achish, who he's fought battles with as the general of Israel's armies. And Achish would like to kill him. You're kind of saying, okay. He's now a political refugee. He's seeking asylum from who? Israel's enemies. Who would like him dead? I mean, he's killed a lot of their member, right? Now, David may have thought that Achish was safer than Saul. He travels to Gath, the hometown of Goliath. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. So David is going to the hometown of Goliath, whom he killed, and he's carrying what with him? He's carrying Goliath's sword, and this sword is not a dagger. It's probably, you know, if you're nine foot nine tall, it's a pretty big sword. This thing probably drugged the ground when David was walking, right? So it's pretty hard to hide a sword of Goliath. Pretty hard. So you walk into Goliath's hometown with a sword that you whacked his head off with, and they know you, right? 
it's clear that David, what David is doing is running. It's equally clear what David is not doing is praying, right? Nowhere here do you see him talking to the Lord, asking for counsel. And I thought, boy, this is us. <clears throat> In our culture, when we run into a problem, what are we expected to do? Fix it, right? When you have a problem, when are you expected to fix it? Now, preferably yesterday. There is no time to pray, right? Start driving. We can always ask for directions later. Have you ever done that? Have any of you ever been in a, you know there's a problem, you got to fix it, whatever the issue in life is, take some action, right? We'll pray later. We'll pray after the accident. I have done that, right? You know, when you run the car off the road, then you say, oh Lord. And the Lord said, uh, I don't think you should be on this freeway or wherever the road you're driving is, right? You know what I'm talking about. So Achish gives him asylum, but he gets some pushback inside the country, verse 11. The servants, the leaders of Achish, of the city of Gath, said to him, do you know who this dude is? Is this not David, the king of the land of Israel? Did they not sing of this one as they danced and saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? So his servants are giving some pushback. See, David's reputation has preceded him. One of the curses of fame is that you can't go anywhere, right? One of the curses of being famous is you have no anonymity. Do you know how valuable anonymity is? Do you know that today you can go to lunch someplace and no one will likely know who you are? That is a serious blessing. It's a serious blessing because when you behave badly, pick your teeth right in the restaurant, they won't know who you are. But if you're a politician and your face or a movie star or whatever, everything you do is scrutinized. Elvis got so twitchy about it that when they went to a roller rink, he had to rent the whole rink. When they went to an amusement park, he had to rent the whole amusement park, right? Because he didn't want to put up with the fame. So anonymity is a good thing. David is not anonymous, right? He's killed a lot of Philistines. They recognize him from battles. David is a rock star and the Philistines even know his tune, right? All his female fans are singing, Saul is slain his thousands, David is... They've heard this song. I guess it was on the top 40 back, yeah, right? Chuck Swindoll said that David in Gath would have been as conspicuous as Dolly Parton in a convent. Kind of hard to miss, right? You've heard the old line, you, you can run, but you can't hide. That's David. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and put on his depends, right? It says he greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Here's the point. David shouldn't even be in Gath. Did God lead him to Gath? No. No. Question, have you ever wound up in a place like Gath and wondered, how did I get here? Any of you ever done that? Right? I didn't plan on getting that DUI. I didn't plan on getting into an argument that led to, right? I didn't plan on drifting away in my relationship with my spouse or my kids. I didn't plan on walking away from God. I just found myself in Gath wherever your gaff is, right? We have all been there. 
What led David to Gath is fear. And guess what? He thought by getting away from Saul, his fear would decrease, and now his fear has increased. Right? Have you ever noticed that sometimes our solutions to our problems don't make things better? They actually make things worse. Any of you ever had that experience? I'm going to fix this thing. I need to fix it right now. And three days later you say, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. So I need to fix it some more. So we jump in there, we're going to take some more action. And a week later, now we have a catastrophe on our hands. Because we're driving the car in overdrive and we never have asked for directions. See, fear isolates us from God and isolates us from other people. And David is operating all alone. David is operating all alone. We really need each other. One of the greatest uses of this class for any of you here is you've got a list of people you can call who have expertise in areas you need expertise in. Right? One of the, one of the things you should pay attention to, I know you do, when prayer requests come around, how many of you look and go, oh, thank God I'm not the only one who's dealing with this? Huh? How many of you listen to prayer requests and go, I am not alone. Thank you, Jesus, I'm not alone. I got brothers and sisters that are swimming in the same pool with me. That's important. There are resources for you. Don't be ashamed to go to folks and say, I'm neck deep in this. What counsel would you give me? I know you're in this battle. Use the resources. You've got God's people in the class right here. David is operating isolation. I didn't even give this one to Rob, but it's a good one. When you take matters in your own hands, you're not in good hands. <laughs> you're not in good hands. <clears throat> Definitely. David knows that he can't fight. He knows that he can't flee. So David's going to have to fool him. And that's what he does. Verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down to his beard. Now you need to understand in the ancient Near East during this period of time, insanity was viewed as a curse from the gods. A curse from the gods. And so madness was treated as a combination of taboo and holiness. It was kind of like it was one of those things we really didn't understand. So it must have come from the gods. It must be a curse. Society generally avoided those who were thought to be uh, uh, mentally ill. We would use mentally ill back then. They used madness or insane. They really believed it was bad luck to harm anybody who was insane because the gods would come after you for, and it would be retribution. So David pretends to be insane because he wants to demonstrate to them that he's harmless. And back in the day, I used to have a little thing here called a beard, no sane man in that culture would ever drool in their beard. Never. Because your beard was a symbol of God's image for the male, right? You took care of your beard. You protected your beard. To drool in your beard would mean you would have to be insane because no self-respecting person would ever do that. So David pretends he's nuts. He's mentally ill and here's how he does it. He, he desecrates his beard and they look at him and go... Well, if he's insane, he's not dangerous, right? He's not going to damage us. He's not going to lead an attack on us because he's not in his right mind. Achish makes one of the greatest all-time statements I've ever seen in verse 15. 
Verse 14, Achish says to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Here's the classic line. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? <clears throat> so Achish knows there's no glory in harming someone who's insane. He, there's no benefit to him to harm David. He says that he already has more than enough crazy Philistines in Washington, D.C. already, so he doesn't need another one, right? So the backstory here is, is that David has taken his eyes off God, but God has not taken his eyes off David. It's very important to remember this. And we know this because in Gath, David writes two Psalms. David writes Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. In Gath, when he's a prisoner in Gath. Psalm 56 was David's prayer for help. And Psalm 34 was David's hymn of praise when God answered him. In Psalm 56, verse 3 to 4, David says, he's in Gath now, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee, in God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Now that's a statement of faith that God gave him in the middle of literally being imprisoned in Gath by his enemies. It's very, very important that you and I understand that even though you take your eye off Jesus, he never takes his eye off you. That even though you might drift away or walked away, he never walks away from you. His love is eternal. And in the middle of this crisis of faith in David's life, when he's listening to his fears, God talks to him and he's writing these down. I would really encourage you to take a look at Psalm 56 and 34 and understand they were written in a period of very, very deep distress in David's life. And he's basically saying, trusting God is a choice. It's not automatic. Nobody trusts God automatically. It's a choice. Do you know that your faith muscle will go stronger with exercise? How many of you know your faith muscle will go stronger with exercise? How many of you are getting some exercise? You will. If you're not yet, you will. Because God loves you. That's why he gives you spiritual exercise. When you trust in yourself, fear is the outcome. When you trust in God, faith is the outcome. And I wrote this down and I'm still struggling with this, so I'm going to lay it on you and you can, we can talk about it later. But here's the, here's the idea. When you fear God properly, you will fear no man. Write it down. Come, you can come up and hit me with it, your perspective. I'm curious what you're thinking. When you fear God properly, you will fear no man. David says, what can mere man do to me? And the answer is only what God allows. And if God's in control, why am I worried about it? Good question. Verse 22. So David departs from there. He's let out, right? Achish lets him go. And he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. You know one of the things that got me about David? You see him moving around a lot, right? Do you, you ever thought he probably traveled light? Probably thought that he only took what he could carry? If you had to leave your house in a half hour and you could only take what you would carry, what would you take? Probably not the kitchen sink, right? Probably not the refrigerator. I mean, they had just a lot less stuff. And he didn't have much stuff at all. If he couldn't carry it, 
he wasn't taking it. If he was dragging around a big heavy sword, he was probably taking even less. So he's probably traveling pretty light. Now on the map you're going to see here, Rob's going to go back to the map, the town of Adullam is about two miles south of the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is where David killed Goliath. This cave that is near the town of Adullam, it's two miles south of that. It's about 10 miles southeast of Gath. It's about halfway literally between Gath and Bethlehem. Bethlehem is David's hometown. So there's limestone hills in this area, lots of them. And there's lots and lots of caves in this area. And there are several that are more than large enough to handle three or 400 people very easily. Large, large, large caves. So David's entire family lives in Bethlehem and now they join him in the cave, right? Remember, if Saul would attack his own son, Jonathan, and try to kill him, David's family is now at risk because they could be hostages. If Saul can't get to David, he's going to grab David's family, put them to the sword, so they join David in the cave. Which is, you know what the backstory on this is? His brothers have now figured out that he's God's anointed. Even the ones that didn't like him before, right? Their kid brother is going to be the king. Verse 2. Not just David's family, but everyone in the land who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, gathered to him and became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. <clears throat> God's purpose in this is to teach David some lessons, but God is also bringing people to David to shepherd. He's a shepherd of sheep. Now he's going to learn to shepherd people. And the people that God brought David to shepherd are distressed. They're struggling under pressures in life and problems. They're drowning in debt under Saul's heavy taxation. They're discontented with Saul's erratic behavior and they're looking for relief and for change. And God's going to let David lead on a small scale, 400, before he takes over the entire nation, right? <clears throat> Verse 3. David went from there, the cave of Adullam, to Mizpah of Moab, down south, east of the Dead Sea. And he says to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and his parents stayed with the king of Moab all the time that David was in the stronghold. The stronghold, by the way, is Masada. Masada. It's on the west side of the Dead Sea, about a third of the way up from the bottom. David's elderly parents were too old to run back and forth. <clears throat> right? When we go to Israel again, I'm going to climb up Masada, Lord willing. So you can hold me to it. So David takes them to Moab for safety because David's great-grandmother was named Ruth, and Ruth was from Moab. So this was kind of home turf at that point in time. <clears throat> Verse 5, And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold at Masada. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth, which we don't know where it is. Here's the principle. I've got to tell you, I struggle with this principle. I submit to it. I embrace it. My flesh hates it. But I embrace it because it's God's plan. God may take away everything we depend on so that we will experience God himself as our only real security. God in his grace now has replaced the prophet Samuel with the prophet Gad. The prophet Gad says, leave Masada, the safety of Masada, and go back into Judah. And that seems very counterintuitive. You want me to move closer to Saul. 
You want me to move two toward the guy who tried to kill me? you got to be kidding me. David's been running away from danger. God tells him to go back closer to danger. Has God ever told you something that didn't make sense? Yeah. Some of you. That's good. The question is, did you do it? David obeyed it, even though it didn't make sense. Here's what David is learning. It's a profound lesson. It's a scary lesson, and all of us are on this path. <clears throat> there is no safety in Masada. There is no protection in Moab. There is no security in the cave of Adullam. There is no refuge in Gath with King Achish. There is no shelter in the Nob city with God's priests. There is no haven in Ramah with Samuel, God's prophet. That's where he was before. There is no shield in Gibeah with Jonathan. And there is no security in the field with the sheep. None. Our only secure refuge is God himself and only him. Psalm 46, verse 1. I highly recommend you read this psalm. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You can only say, therefore, we will not fear if God is your refuge and strength. And one of the ways that God will be your refuge and strength is he will begin to take away the things that you lean on. David was hiding in the cave. God gave him Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. In Psalm 57, David's in the cave of Adullam and he writes, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee. And in the shadow of thy wings I take refuge until destruction passes by. In Psalm 142, he talks about human relationships in verse 4. He says, look to the right and see. There is no one who cares for me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5. I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. David is learning that to depend on people or circumstances changes. But God never changes. God is taking away everything from David. I want you to look at what David used to have. David used to have a very powerful position. He was captain over a thousand soldiers in Saul's army. David used to be popular. He was the rock star, man. He came into town and the women would go nuts over him. That can go to your head, right? David used to have people that supported him. His wife, Michael, saved his bacon. His friend, Jonathan, the, his mentor, the prophet Samuel. David's position now is gone. He's gone from being a general to being a fugitive, right? God took away his popularity. Probably most of Israel thinks Saul's managed to kill him. He's out of the public lie. He's gone from being very famous to being a nobody. His wife, Michael, is given to another man. As far as we know, David only saw Jonathan once in 10 years. His best friend. Once in 10 years. David can't visit Samuel. Obviously, that would put Samuel at risk. David even loses his self-respect. This is the war hero of Israel that's got a drool in his beard, which is very, very disrespectful in that culture, to pretend to be insane in order to escape death, and he's a guy who's lived by the sword. No help, right? God is teaching David to lean only on the Lord. There's an old spiritual tune called what? Learning to lean? Learning to lean on Jesus? <clears throat> you know, today, we depend on a lot of stuff besides Jesus, 
don't we? We depend on our, first of all, our parents, our teachers, our education, our friends, our job, our money, our health, our marriage, our position, our reputation, our government. All that stuff is temporary. All that stuff is temporary. Only God is our eternal refuge. So right now, David is operating in fear, but he's coming back to the Lord. And Saul is operating in fear, and he refuses to come back to the Lord. Go to verse 6 of chapter 22. Saul is sitting under Gibeah. He's under the tamarisk tree, and he's sitting on the height. It's an elevated area with a spear in his hand, and all his servants are standing around him. So he's sitting on kind of a raised chair. There's no palace yet. He's underneath a prominent tree, everybody's standing around, you know, waiting for his command. He likes to be the center of attention. And have you noticed how often Saul is described as holding a spear? Even when he's surrounded by bodyguards, he's got to have a spear. The guy is scared, right? Verse 7, Saul says to all of his servants, Hear, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse, David, give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands? So Saul's leadership is now bribery. If you follow me, I'll give you vineyards. If you follow me, I'll give you position. I'll appoint you as commander if you follow me. So he's got to buy loyalty, right? I got to reward you. Where would Saul get those fields and vineyards? He confiscated them via taxes, right, from somebody else. Samuel told him this is going to happen. And here we see Saul at, at among his worst, verse 8. Please don't talk like verse 8. If you talk like verse 8, we'll put a no whiner sign on your forehead. <clears throat> this is Saul. For all of you have conspired against me, so there is no one, wah, wah, who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, wah, wah, and there is none of you who is sorry for me, really, wah, wah, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me, land that. Okay, here's the point. Self-centeredness exalts me above God and leads to an out-of-control life. Self-centeredness exalts me above God and leads to an out-of-control life. Saul is singing the great tune from 1957, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want It, right? You all remember that song way back, right? You would cry too if it happened to you. This guy's a thumbsucker. This is pitiful. Self-pity is pathetic. He's also... This is scary. He's becoming legitimate, not legitimately, but he's becoming irrationally paranoid. He refuses to trust God, and so he trusts no one else. He accuses everyone around him of conspiring against him, including David. Here's what's frightening. He says the only way to prove that you're not conspiring against me is to rat somebody else out. Right? That's what he said. Right? None of you who discloses to me. Right? So I'm accusing all of you of being a conspirator unless you rat somebody else out. Well, we saw the Soviet Union run that for about 70 years. He's creating a police state here where everybody's going to spy on everybody else. Ever notice that almost all dictators are a little paranoid? All, you ever notice that? Almost all dictators are, are looking over their shoulder all the time because deep down they know that what goes around comes around and they've done a lot of bad stuff to innocent people and so they've got to watch their back. That's Saul. No one says anything about his whining except Doeg, verse 9. The Edomite, who's standing by the servants of Saul, he says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He acquired of the Lord, gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath. The rat 
has emerged from his sewer. And he lies to Saul about David in order to make himself look good. He wants to suck up to Saul, right? Verse 11, the king sends someone to Ahimelech the priest, takes all his household. Verse 13, you talk about a kangaroo court, this is a kangaroo court. Saul says, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? You've given him bread and a sword and inquired God for him that he should rise up against me, lying me in ambush. Saul doesn't even bother gathering information. How many of you have ever been in a jury trial? Typically, do they present evidence before they ask for a verdict? Why would they do that? Does evidence matter? Uh, well, Paul says, I mean, Saul says, we don't need no stinking evidence, right? I don't need any evidence. I, I'm the one who decides, right? In Saul's kingdom, you were presumed guilty. By the way, Western jurisprudence says in this country, at least historically, you're always presumed innocent until proven guilty. Saul's kingdom, you're presumed guilty. And he brings charges against the priest. You did this, you gave him bread, you gave him a weapon, you inquired for God, and therefore you must want me dead, right? You must be part of David's conspiracy. You know what's bizarre? Saul is so suspicious, it's making him stupid. Who's the one who's conspiring to kill David? Saul's conspiring to kill David. And yet Saul thinks that David's conspiring to kill him. That's not really logical. Verse 14. The priest, Ahimelech, says, Gosh, David is your son-in-law. David is the captain over your guard. David is honored in your house, right? Verse 15. We don't know anything about any conspiracy. Ahimelech assumes that the son-in-law of the king would be on the king's good list, just like your sons-in-law are, right? Captain of the guard. Ahimelech says, we don't know anything about this conspiracy. Saul doesn't even bother to cross-examine Ahimelech. What does he do in verse 16? He says, you're going to die, right? And all your father's household. We don't need any evidence. I've already made up my mind. I make my own rules. It's interesting that Saul is unwilling to kill the wicked Am Amalekites, but he's very willing to kill innocent priests. We have said in this class for years that sin makes you stupid. The further you get away from God, the more irrational your behavior will be because God is the source of what? Truth. God is the source of justice. God is the source of wisdom. God is the source of enlightenment. The further you get away from God, the dumber, to coin a term, the behavior gets. So the biggest fool in the universe is Satan. He knows the most of the creatures and he disobeys the most as well. Saul is, is rejecting God's authority and as a result, he is literally becoming more and more irrational. Verse 17, the king tells the guards, murder the priests. And they don't do it. They, the Saul's own bodyguards won't touch God's priests. Now that should have been a rebuke to Saul. Right? If Saul says, kill those priests and they don't do it, that should be, I mean, these people are innocent and even my soldiers won't carry out this command. Maybe it's not a good command. Maybe it's something I need to reconsider here at that point in time. But have you noticed that self-centered people seldom listen to advice? Self-centered people seldom listen to advice. This is very relevant, Right? If you know self-centered people, they generally don't go around saying, 
uh, let me run this by you. What do you think? Does this make sense biblically? Does this make sense from God's point of view? Self-centered people like their own opinions, nobody else's, and that's Saul. Verse 18, the king says, Saul says to Doeg, kill those priests. So he does. How many does he kill? Verse 19, what else does he kill? He goes beyond Saul's command, which in itself was evil. Number one, <clears throat> there was nothing worthy of death here. Number two, he not only kills Ahimelech, who's the only guy who had interaction with David, he kills all the priests, 85 of them, right? Innocent. Though it goes beyond that, he goes to the city, strikes the entire city with the edge of the sword. Men, women, children, infants, all the animals. There are always wicked people who will obey wicked leaders. That's the nature of the human condition. You know, folks, I hate to say this, but mass murder is not a new development. We read the paper and we go, it's tragic. And it is tragic beyond words when this occurs. But it's not new. Human beings at core, disconnected from God, are under the yoke of slavery and sin, and they will do wicked things. So let me summarize here before Tom comes up in a couple minutes. David and Saul are both experiencing fear. David, based on his unwillingness at the time to pray and take matters in his own hands, walks into some very, very, very bad situations. But to David's credit, when the Lord talked to him, what did he do? He turned around and he ran back to the Lord. He turned around, he repented, which is good news for us because when we make bad choices, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how many sins? All sins. So you come back, you repent, you turn around, you come back to the Lord. Saul refuses to submit to God's authority. Saul keeps running from God. Saul continues to grab onto leadership and refuses to, to admit that God knows better than he does. And what happens to his life? It spirals more and more out of control. Do you know what's interesting? It's a paradox. The more you demand to be in control of your own life, the more out of control your life becomes. You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed that control freaks are really not happy people? You wouldn't know any control freaks, would you? No, none of you? Yeah. yeah, I look in the mirror and the Lord goes, yeah, you are the man, right? Two different men, two different choices, two different destinies. Let's summarize. Here's the key question. Do I ask God for guidance? <clears throat> How many of you are going to have an opportunity to ask God for guidance this week? How many of you will need guidance this week? Just saying. All right? All right. Now, when you do know what it is from the Word of God, from the Spirit of God, <coughs> from circumstances and from other people's advice, will you do it? Or will you say, well, let me see what God says and then I'll decide. That's not going to get it. You don't judge God. He knows best. So when you ask God for guidance, do it. Number one, lying is a symptom of fear, not faith. If I'm lying, I'm operating in fear. I'm not operating in faith because I'm trusting my own cleverness and not God's wisdom. Number two, when I take action without praying, I'm driving without directions. I actually could say I'm driving blindfolded. That might even be better, right? 
Get directions before you start driving, not after you get lost. Number three, who God may take away everything we are depending on so that we will experience God himself as our only real security. Now, when God does that in your life and he starts knocking the props out from under you, that is a sign of his love. He's saying, don't depend on the things of this world because they're temporary. Don't rest your life on your health because you know your health is going to do what? It's not going to improve long term, right? We're headed for a serious upgrade, but until then, it's not going to get better. Same with finances. It's not that all these aren't gifts from God. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy them. It's not that you shouldn't use them. Just don't put your trust in them. Put your trust in the sure foundation of Jesus Christ and Him only. Lastly, self-centeredness exalts me above God. It means I'm the sinner, not God. And paradoxically, the more I want to be in control, the more I'm out of control. All right. You got 167 hours worth of work to do, you think? All right. I love you guys. Now that you know, 